This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. Oh, yes, it has been way too long, but we are finally back here on MLB Morning Coffee, a production of the Ocean Avenue Studios. It is Tuesday, April 27th, 2021. I just have to flat out apologize because I have not been on my game when it comes to the podcast. I have used work as an excuse. I have used my energy level as an excuse. I've used everything as an excuse. And quite frankly, that's not acceptable. You all come here for a show about baseball, and I'm here to give you one. I will say one of the reasons I have not been doing a show is that the scoreboard segments, they take a lot out of me. It is a long process to gather all the highlights, clip the highlights, organize them all with the recaps. I want to get back to that, but I don't think that I can do it every day. So I'd like to be able to do some of it at one point or another during a week. So I'll figure that out once May comes, but I'm debuting a new episode today that I want to do at least once a week every Tuesday. It's called My 10 Tuesday Thoughts, and we're going to give you 10 general thoughts about what's going on in baseball right now, and we have a decent amount to cover considering that I'm going to backdate this to the start of the season. But every Tuesday, we are going to do a 10 Tuesday Thoughts, which will cover what's going on in baseball that week, anything general that's trending at the moment, basically what you really need to know about the game of baseball in an overarching sense in 10 segments. So here we go. This is 10 Tuesday Thoughts here on MLB Morning Coffee, a production of the Athletes Unfiltered Podcast Network and recorded at the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. Here is thought number one. My first thought here on our 10 Tuesday Thoughts is that Major League Baseball's replay system is an absolute joke, and here's why. There have been issues with the replay process all year, none more important in my opinion than what happened in the Mets-Marlins game a couple of weeks back when Michael Conforto was hit with his elbow extending over the strike zone. The umpire was going to call a strike. He called a hit by pitch. The play is not reviewable. So why do we have replay if there are plays that are not reviewable? So that, to me, really sparked off this debate in regards to what is the purpose of replay if we're not going to get it right. And in that Mets-Marlins game, the umpire should have known the rule that if a player extends into the strike zone, if he leans into the pitch, that should have been called a strike. Even though it hit Conforto, you even saw the home plate umpire. He was going to call a strike and then basically changed his movement, called a hit by pitch, and that should not have happened because that was not the rule. The Mets won the game, and you even heard on the Mets broadcast, they could not believe that that call was actually made, and they were stunned that the Mets got the win that way. But that's what happened because the play was not reviewable. Two situations last night were absolutely abhorrent. Let's start first with the Yankees and Orioles. There was a play in the eighth inning where Aaron Judge got tagged out at third to end the inning. The umpires ruled that DJ LeMahieu, the runner ahead of Aaron Judge, 
didn't score because the out at third occurred before LeMahieu's foot touched home plate. Now, that's a play that could have been reviewed, but Aaron Boone didn't apparently get the challenge in in time, and thus the umpires declined to review the play. Boone was furious and ended up getting ejected. As far as I know, there is no set time to when an umpire starts and stops this challenge clock or perceived challenge clock to where a manager must be able to challenge the play. This clock seems completely arbitrary, and in my opinion, this was just an excuse for the umpires to say, Aaron Boone, you're not allowed to challenge because we don't want to deal with the repercussions of not overturning this call. As replay showed, and it was by barely a footstep, Judge actually was tagged out before LeMayhew ended up touching the plate. So the challenge would have failed. But the principle of the challenge is the issue here, and the umpires handled it very poorly. Now let's go to Tampa Bay, where the A's had an even more egregious gripe with the replay system. Top of the seventh inning, it's a 2-1 ball game. Tony Kemp hits a pop-up into shallow left field. The Rays infielder, I don't remember who it was at the time, it might have been Joey Wendell, was having trouble with the lights and the catwalk and the trop and ended up having the ball fall to the side of him. There were two outs, so Elvis Andrus, the runner on base, was running on contact. The relay home to try and get Andrus was late. The umpire called Andrus out. The A's went to review the play. On the NBC Sports California broadcast, and from what all I saw on Twitter, it was pretty evident that Elvis Andrus got his hand on home plate before the Rays catcher Mike Zanino ended up applying the tag on him. It was clear when you zoomed in, and it wasn't a big zoom, it was a little zoom from the third base angle. When you zoomed in, you saw Andrus's hand touch the plate before the catcher's glove was put on him. It was pretty clear based on that replay and based on the time that we were waiting that that call was going to be overturned and that the A's were going to score a run. Well, as it turns out, the umpires take off the headsets. They rule that the runner is out. Bob Melvin comes out to argue, and within five seconds of him coming out of the dugout, he was ejected. I don't even think Bob Melvin got five words in before he got ejected. And look, That is New York's decision, not the decision of the umpires on the field. So that decision to keep the call what it was, was not made by the umpires on the field. But my question is, what are they looking at? We have seen countless situations in regards to Major League Baseball replay to where we see something that is completely obvious. Us at home, on our couches, on our one screen from the local broadcast, who, by the way, has fewer cameras than the New York replay system does, at least from what I know. So there is no excuse for why we at home, on fewer camera angles, should be seeing something that is so obvious that Major League Baseball can't. And that's the biggest problem that I have with the replay system, is that there is no accountability. What is the common denominator on the replay system in the NBA, the NFL, and the NHL? The answer is that all of the referees have microphones that are hooked into the PA system and hooked into the TV broadcast. Now, I'll correct that just a little. 
I do not believe that the NBA mics are hooked into the PA system. But in the NFL and the NHL, the referee mics are connected to the broadcast and to the PA system. And that's why we are able to understand when a review happens what the call is, and especially in the case of the NFL, why the call was made the way it was. We honestly need an Ed Hockley of baseball, somebody that's going to come out once a review is done and explain exactly why the call was either kept the same or reversed and the reasoning behind it. It does us absolutely no good to have two umpires with headsets on connected to the New York replay system and have them make arm gestures. That doesn't do it for me. That doesn't do it for the teams. It doesn't do it for the broadcast. We need to know why these decisions are being made. And quite frankly, Major League Baseball is opening itself up to more scrutiny than it should have to by not being accountable for these decisions. Set that aside for a moment. I don't even want to know why they made a decision on a certain call. I want to know why they're getting blatantly obvious calls wrong. I have no problem if an umpire gets a call wrong on the field. But the purpose of replay is that if the opposing team, the team that was wronged in this situation, if their video coordinator sees evidence and he's got the same technology that they have back in New York, better technology in regards to certain camera angles than they do on the television broadcast. If that guy sees enough to overturn it and sees it blatantly obvious that the call on the field should be reversed and messages that down to the dugout, then there's no reason why Major League Baseball's replay system shouldn't be seeing the same thing. And it goes back to what happened in the A's and the Rays game, and it goes back to other calls this season. It is blatantly obvious to us that a call should be reversed. And for some reason, Major League Baseball sees it completely opposite. I don't understand why, and I don't understand the point of replay if we're not going to get calls right. Wasn't the whole purpose of replay to get critical calls correct? We're not doing that. And yet we're reviewing plays when a runner is sliding in over a base to determine is that runner out if his stomach came off the top of the base for a millisecond. That wasn't what replay was instituted for. And in every instance prior to replay being instituted, a play like that where a runner is sliding into a base and his body comes up off of the base once he has slid past the front of the base but without oversliding the base, that runner is safe. There was a pickoff call in the Nationals-Cubs NLDS in 2017 where a Nationals runner was picked off of first because his body came up off of the base for like a millisecond. That's not what replay was instituted for. So if we're going to continue to have this system, we need to have accountability from the umpires and we need to have people in New York that are actually looking at the play are seeing the evidence and getting the calls right. Because right now, it's apparent that the replay system in Major League Baseball is simply not working. Okay, so that was a pretty long first thought. We're going to have our next few thoughts be a little bit shorter. Yesterday, Rockies general manager Jeff Breidich resigned. And this, to me, is a very cowardly move. I say that 
because Breidich is the guy that signed Nolan Arenado to an eight-year, $260 million extension. This is by far the best player that the Rockies franchise has ever developed. Some may make the argument it's Troy Tulowitzki, others say Matt Holliday, but I think the consensus amongst most Rocky fans is that Nolan Arenado is the best player the franchise has developed since its inception in 1993. But then soon after that extension was signed, Breidich started getting into a you-know-what match with Arenado, decided that he wanted to alienate him, and then eventually traded him to the St. Louis Cardinals while also giving the Cardinals one quarter of Arenado's remaining salary. And in exchange, getting Austin Gomber, a borderline MLB starter, and a bunch of prospects that may or may not prove to be anything. Breidich basically torpedoed the Rockies' chances of being a competitive franchise in the near future, and to top it off, because he signed Arenado to that extension and then traded him away, there was no way he was going to be able to sign Trevor Story to any sort of extension, nor would he probably have done that if he had remained in the job. We don't necessarily know why Breidich resigned other than the fact that he might have gotten fired if he had stayed on because he's done such a poor job at keeping this franchise competitive in the last two years. The Rockies went from a team that was a perennial playoff contender, they were a phenomenal team in 2018, to a team that's going to sit at the bottom of the National League West for the next five years. They have a couple of solid pieces in Charlie Blackman and Ryan McMahon, but who knows if they're going to keep Charlie Blackman around. Ryan McMahon is about their only young, controllable piece of any value right now. He's hitting the ball out of the ballpark. But other than him, it's a big mystery. And I view this situation as one where a new GM is going to have to salvage what the Rockies have in order to turn their course around. Jeff Breidich resigned because he's a coward. He didn't want to get fired, he's made enough money, and because of his vendetta with Nolan Arenado and all of the words that he decided to speak out of turn when talking about Arenado a few years back, he torpedoed the franchise, decided to trade away the player that he felt had a vendetta against him, and then left the franchise in a situation to where somebody else is going to have to pick up the pieces. To see this move is incredibly cowardly. Shame on you, Jeff Breidich, for having zero accountability and basically making this all about yourself and torpedoing the franchise that you once built into a perennial playoff contender. Our third thought on our 10 Tuesday thoughts is in regards to Major League Baseball's hitting problem. This is a tweet on Monday from Cubs broadcaster John Book Shambi. MLB slash line into today, and into today is yesterday's games, 232, 310, 390. That's batting average, on-base percentage, slugging percentage. The batting average would be the lowest ever. In 2008, Boog says, about 42% of swings put balls in play. This year, 35.4%. In 2008, the swing miss percentage was 20%, and this year, it is 27.3%. Swing and miss percentage is whiff percentage, which is the percentage of balls that are swung at that are completely missed, so non-foul strikes and balls not put in play. So you have 27.3% over a quarter of all swings in Major League Baseball not making contact. 
you have a collective batting average of 232 and a collective on-base percentage in the entire league of 310. Not to mention, it is April 27th, we have already had three no-hitters, and one of them I'm going to get to in just a moment because it is a topic that is worth discussing and another one of my 10 Tuesday thoughts here on MLB Morning Coffee. The reason why we are having this hitting problem is because of the launch angle revolution. What that has done is it has exacerbated the three true outcomes, which are home runs, strikeouts, and walks. And that's where baseball is right now, because we care about launch angle, we care about exit velocity, we care about OPS, OPS+, plus, runs created plus. We care about all of these advanced metrics that are all related to the three true outcomes of home runs, strikeouts, and walks. With players trying to hit the ball higher and having a more uppercut swing, you're getting more home runs. We've seen that pretty evident over the last couple of years, but you're getting way more strikeouts. And right now, if you are having players whiff on 27.3% of all swings... That shows that Major League Baseball has a collective hitting problem, that the launch angle revolution has gone too far. We're getting less balls put in play. Here's a stat that I heard on the radio the other day that is remarkable. White Sox second baseman Nick Madrigal has a 100% contact rate on balls in the strike zone. That's right. On all balls that by StatCast are defined as being in the strike zone, Nick Madrigal has not whiffed. That, to me, is remarkable. Not to take anything away from Joe Musgrove or Carlos Rodon or Madison Bumgarner, but the fact that we already have three no-hitters and we're not even done with April is just showing that pitchers are dominating now more than ever, but not just because pitchers are really good, because pitchers are really good. But hitters are coming to the plate with an approach that is all or nothing. Take, for instance, Javier Baez. Right now, Javier Baez is hitting 234 with a 272 on on-base percentage. He has six homers and 17 RBI in 20 games, which is pretty solid. But here is the stat that is glaring to me. Javier Baez has struck out 35 times this year. He has walked once. And this is not just an aberration. Last year, Javier Baez struck out 75 times and walked seven times. Now, 75 to 7 is a strikeout-to-walk ratio of almost 11, and that's not good. But 35 to 1? That's unacceptable for a major league hitter, let alone somebody that finished second in the MVP voting in 2018. The launch angle revolution has created more home runs, and it has created more dominant pitchers because we're getting more strikeouts. In my opinion, something has to change because this is not the trajectory that baseball should be on. On Sunday, in Game 2 of a doubleheader against the Atlanta Braves, Arizona Diamondbacks starter Madison Bumgarner threw a no-hitter. Sort of. Because Major League Baseball determined that doubleheaders are seven-inning games, Mad Bum threw seven no-hit innings, and the game was over. However, because of a rule instituted by Commissioner Faye Vincent in 1991, no hitters that do not go a full nine innings are not considered no hitters in the Major League Baseball record book. To me, this is absolutely ridiculous. And as of the recording of this show, 
Major League Baseball and the Elias Sports Bureau had not yet decided whether or not to classify Bumgarner's no-hitter as an actual no-hitter. Major League Baseball is contradicting itself. MLB said that doubleheaders in 2021 were going to be seven-inning games. Those are complete games in the structure that they implemented. So, seven no-hit innings in this format is a complete game. In high school baseball, we consider a no-hitter to be seven innings because high school games are seven innings. So why is this not the case? You said that seven-inning games are the norm in doubleheaders. So why does this no-hitter count? He would not have had an opportunity for a no-hitter if it had not gone two extra innings in this format. And yet, with the runners starting on second base rule, you could have thrown a no-hitter and lost. Yes, you could have thrown a no-hitter and still lost the game because with a runner starting on second base, that runner could have scored without the benefit of a hit. Sack bunt, sack fly, sack bunt, ground out, whatever. So my point being is that a no-hitter is a no-hitter is a no-hitter. All Madison Bumgarner had to do was pitch seven complete innings of baseball. And he did that. And the Braves didn't get any hits. Now, there's still a chance that this goes into the record book as a no-hitter. What's even funnier about this is that the Braves almost got no hit in game one of the doubleheader, as Diamondback starter Zach Gallen allowed just one hit over seven innings. So the Braves ended up getting one hit over the course of 14 innings on Sunday, and if it had been no hits, there's still a possibility that neither game counted as a no-hitter. You gave Madison Bumgarner a complete game because he did pitch a complete game. Now give him the damn no-hitter. Not that hard. Even though he took the loss last night, what Corbin Burns is doing right now is simply incredible. Through five starts, the Brewers starter has a 1.53 ERA and has 49 strikeouts in 29 and a third innings. He also has not issued a walk yet and is approaching a Major League Baseball record for most strikeouts to begin a season before issuing their first walk. That record, by the way, is held by a relief pitcher, Kenley Jansen, who had 51 to start the 2017 season before issuing his first walk. Burns has 49, so he's three strikeouts away from setting that record should he get that record before he issues his first walk, or rather I should say, should he get that third strikeout before he issues his first walk on the season. Burns has been the dictionary definition of lights out, and it's really cool to see because it is something that I don't think we're going to see again for quite some time. He did take the loss, as we said last night, against the Miami Marlins, but he is clearly somebody that is here to stay. Everybody had high expectations for him when he made his big league debut in 2018, struggled mightily in 2019 as he was mostly out of the bullpen each of his first two seasons. But last year and this year, he's proving he can be a frontline starter. I'm not normally one to buy into all of the national hype surrounding one rivalry, and it maybe is because I have PTSD from being bashed over the head with Yankees and Red Sox on Sunday Night Baseball from my entire childhood. But I will say that the Dodgers and Padres rivalry, the one that is developing right now, is one of the best in baseball and is going to be one of the best in baseball for years to come. 
These are two teams that are very talented and have some very expressive personalities. With the Padres, you've got Fernando Tatis Jr., Manny Machado, and a host of other young guns that are some of the best at what they do. The Dodgers, meanwhile, are the most complete team in all of baseball. They've got a lineup that can hit one through nine, and they have a rotation that stacks up against anybody in all of baseball. Trevor Bauer is the ultimate lightning rod, and I understand why some people either love or they hate him, me being on the latter end of that spectrum, but you have to admit that he does provide entertainment value and has sparked this rivalry even further. Let's go back to Saturday when Fernando Tatis Jr. homered off of him and then covered one eye as he was running the bases. That is an homage to what Bauer said in spring training that he could pitch with just one eye open. These two teams don't like each other because they are both high-energy, highly entertaining products that believe that they are the best in the division. Now, the Dodgers, they wear the crown right now, but the Padres are set up to be one of the best teams in baseball for the next five to ten years. It's only a matter of time before these two teams end up being the most watched rivalry in baseball when it comes to the ratings because of the intensity and because of the passion and the energy that is brought between these two clubs. I think that this may end up being a rivalry that is born out of this year that lasts for a very long time. It is not your traditional rivalry like the Dodgers and Giants or the Yankees and Red Sox or the Cubs and the Cardinals. But it is certainly a rivalry that we are going to pay attention to every time they take the field the rest of the year, and that is 12 more times. I imagine you're going to see a lot of nationally televised games coming out of this rivalry. This next thought is on Shohei Otani, and I'm going to keep it relatively short. But this is somebody that is truly great for the game of baseball. You can make the argument that we have not had a two-way phenomenon like this since Babe Ruth in his Red Sox days. And Otani is actually part of a club with Babe Ruth, or at least he was entering last night, as being only one of eight pitchers to be tied for or have the league lead in home runs at this point in the season. Shohei Otani may have some health issues in regards to his pitching, but as a hitter, this dude is legit. He is big, he's got a quick bat, he just hits the ball on a line, I love what I see from Shohei Otani. I'm not an Angels fan by any stretch of the imagination. They are Southern California's forgotten team at this point, and that is with Mike Trout, who is the best player in baseball, and I don't think anybody could argue the contrary, at least based on the statistics. But Shohei Otani, if he stays healthy, is going to end up having a career that is unlike any other, and our only hope is that he is able to stay healthy for the rest of this year and for the rest of his career. It is a very small sample size, but there is a lot of parity in Major League Baseball this year. Take a look at what we expected coming into the year. In the American League East, we thought it would be the Yankees and the Rays. Well, the Boston Red Sox, who were predicted fourth by many outlets, are leading the division at 14-9. The Yankees, they're in last place at 9-13. Everybody thought the Minnesota Twins or the Chicago White Sox would be at the top of the American League Central. The White Sox are 12-9, and and they're in second place. 
The Twins, however, have been awful. They are 7-14, and and they are tied for the fewest wins in the American League, along with their division mates, the Detroit Tigers. The best team in the American League Central is the Kansas City Royals, who have won five in a row and are just absolutely dominant on the road. They are 6-2 and away from Kauffman Stadium this year. That's the best winning percentage for any American League Central team in road games. It's the second best overall in the American League behind the Oakland Athletics. Let's talk about the Oakland Athletics. They've got the best record in the American League at 15-8. and The A's started the season 0-6, but have since won 14 of their last 15 games, including a 13-game winning streak that came to an end on Sunday in Baltimore. In second place in the American League West, the Seattle Mariners, a team that everybody thinks is still rebuilding, yet they're at 13-10 and and they've lost two in a row. They've been competitive pretty much the entire year. The Houston Astros, they're a 500 team, and the Angels are 11-10. and It's not just the American League that we're seeing a lot of parity. Let's talk about the National League. The Mets, they're in first place at 9-8 and eight in the National League East, but you've got a bunch of teams. Every team in the National League East is within two games of the division lead. The Phillies are a half game back. Braves and Marlins one and a half back. Nationals are two back, and they're 8-11. and 11. In the National League Central, nobody knew what was going to happen, but you've got the Milwaukee Brewers, who are 13-9, and nine, and every other team is within three games. The Pirates and the Cardinals are 500 at 11 and 11. They're two back. The Cubs and the Reds are 10 and 12. They're three back. Let's look at the National League West. The Dodgers and the Giants are tied for the division lead at 15 and 8 and tied with the A's for the best record in all of baseball. The Padres are two and a half back at 13 and 11. And the Diamondbacks somehow are only three and a half back at 11 and 11. It is amazing how tight some of these races are, granted early on, but it's incredible how much parity there is in Major League Baseball this year. Is it going to keep up? Who knows? Are the teams that are maybe overperforming going to come back down to the pack? More than likely. The team that I'm really curious to see if they come back to the pack is the Kansas City Royals, because everybody thought that they were a couple years away from competing, but right now with a lineup that's got lethal hitters like Whit Merrifield in it and a pitching staff that is young and competitive, they may prove to be a lot tougher test down the road than anybody thought they were going to be this year. I would say the biggest surprise is probably the Royals. People thought that the Red Sox were a surprise, but they've got more talent than I think we gave them credit for. And Alex Cora, say what you want about the sign-stealing scandal. He's a damn great manager. Maybe the most disappointing team, though, in all of Major League Baseball thus far is the Minnesota Twins. They've just floundered out of the gates. They're seven games under 500. Their pitching has struggled. Nelson Cruz is hitting, but the rest of their lineup has been really inconsistent. I'm not sure what to make of the Minnesota Twins other than they are not performing to their expectations. Josh Donaldson is going to need to pick it up now that he's healthy. But parity in Major League Baseball, you absolutely love to see it. Thought number nine is less of a thought and more of a, this is absolutely awesome. I don't know if anybody watched the Giants and the Marlins last Thursday night, but we had a glimpse of Alex the Great, a.k.a. the giant bunny that was caught on camera in the stands at Oracle Park. 
This is a therapy bunny belonging to Kay Cato, who lost her restaurant in San Francisco during the pandemic and uses the bunny as emotional support. This rabbit is huge, and it's only four and a half months old. It also has its own Instagram page, which I think is really freaking cool. But yeah, I want to give a shout out to Alex the Great. The bunny is adorable, and it's just great for baseball. It's great for life. I'm like Bill Walton. I love life. I love bunnies. I love everything. My final thought is on the fans. Last year, it was very strange watching Major League Baseball games without fans. And the reason why it was so strange, and less strange than any of the other sports, is that Major League Baseball was the first sport outside of the PGA Tour to return after the height of the pandemic. And we could make the argument that they were playing through the height of the pandemic, but that's up to your interpretation. This year, having fans back in the stands has provided a boost to all of these players and to all of us at home that we desperately needed. Sometimes when I'm working during the day, I'll be able to tune on the Oakland Athletics radio broadcast, which I can stream through my phone. And by hearing the crowd, I feel like I'm back at a ballpark. You could tell when crowd noise was manufactured last year. It was pretty evident after a couple of games. But even with 20% or 30% capacity in some of these ballparks... It is awesome to see fans back in the stands. And it is great to see fans that are abiding by health and safety protocols. There are a lot of ballparks, looking at you, Texas and Atlanta, that aren't bringing back in fans the right way. I saw on the Cubs and Braves game last night that there were a bunch of fans that just didn't have masks. It's not that they had masks and weren't wearing them. They just flat out didn't have any masks. I think that there needs to be better enforcement, but if the teams don't care, I guess there's really nothing that you can do about it. But it's clear through the first month of the season that baseball is better when fans are here. That is it for our 10 Tuesday Thoughts here on MLB Morning Coffee. I hope you enjoyed this segment. We will be back next time, whether it be tomorrow or a day in the future. We're going to try and switch it up a little bit and have a couple of different stylistic types of episodes, but expect 10 Tuesday Thoughts to come out every Tuesday morning. It's a little bit later today. It'll be earlier next Tuesday. Thanks for listening to this edition of MLB Morning Coffee, a production of the Athletes Unfiltered Podcast Network. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Helps out our metrics tremendously. Go to Unfiltered Pods on Twitter and check out all the rest of the shows on the Athletes Unfiltered Network. This show was recorded at the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. Have a great rest of your day, everybody, and please enjoy the ball games.